Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're talking about one of the most contentious issues that ever gets talked about in the city of Austin, housing and land use. Now, on the face of it, land use doesn't sound like it'd be the sexiest or most divisive issue, but it really can be. Because what we're talking about here is home. It's where all of us literally live. What our neighborhoods look like, how much it costs to live there, whether or not they're walkable or have good access to green space. All of these things are determined, at least in part, by something called the Land Development Code. And you can think of a Land Development Code as kind of like a rule book for the city. It's what decides what can be built and where, as well as other things like how tall a building can be in certain neighborhoods. Now, I'm sure many of you know by now that our Land Development Code was originally written in the 80s, when Austin looked very different than it does now. In other words, it's old, and there have been a lot of proposals over the years for the code to be updated and rewritten. Most notably, in a process known as Code Next, the city tried for many, many years to do just that, but the effort officially died in March of 2022, after years of starts and stops over both political and legal battles. And don't worry, we're not going to spend today's podcast refighting over Code Next, but it is important context to share because it's heavily influencing the way council is dealing with land use issues today. So instead of trying to rewrite the entire code uh, in one fell swoop, council has started chipping away at individual pieces that they feel like can have the biggest impact or be implemented the quickest, and most importantly, uh, things that can be agreed upon by the majority of council. So over the past year, council has taken votes to remove parking requirements, relax compatibility standards, which limit the height of buildings near single-family homes, um, and to create new density programs to encourage affordable housing home ownership opportunities. Now, not all of these have actually gone into effect yet. There's a bit of a process for making changes to our city's land development code, and oftentimes several votes have to be taken and studies have to be done. But the point here is that council is really focusing on housing. And that is for obvious reasons. We all know that housing in Austin has gotten super expensive, and many argue that our land development code, which are the rules we have in place about how housing can be built in our city, uh, it plays a big role in that. Which leads us to today. About a month ago, you probably got a little purple postcard in your mailbox. The city sent out over 700,000 of these to notify people of a set of proposed changes to our land development code that city council is considering right now. If passed, these changes would allow up to three housing units to be built on lots zoned for single family, allow tiny homes, which are smaller than 400 square feet, to count as official housing units, and remove restrictions on the number of unrelated adults who are allowed to live together. Let's start with that last one, restrictions on the number of unrelated adults living together. Under our city's current rules, a maximum of four or six unrelated adults, depending on the part of town, are allowed to live together in one housing unit. The idea behind changing this is to allow people to split housing costs by having roommates and to make it easier to establish housing cooperatives. Oh, and this change doesn't necessarily mean that houses will be allowed to be, like, super packed with a bunch of people. The city's health and safety codes would still apply, which do limit total occupancy rates in a building, you know, according to the number of bedrooms it has. 
Anyway, while there has been some debate and discussion over the specifics of eliminating or tweaking this rule, it's definitely not the most controversial of the proposed land development code changes. The bulk of the debate and the conversation has been over the proposal to allow up to three units to be built on single-family zoned lots, which is called the HOME Initiative. And HOME stands for Home Options for Middle Income Empowerment. And the general idea behind it is to make it easier to build duplexes and triplexes throughout the city. This is sometimes called missing middle housing because it's not like large apartment complexes, but it provides a bit more density than traditional single-family homes. Now, if home were passed, it would allow up to three units to be built on lot zoned SF, or single-family, one, two, and three. Right now, you can build two units on SF3 lots, and for the most part, SF1 and SF2 can only have one unit. And home is a proposal that's been put forward by Austin City Council member Leslie Poole, which is notable because Councilmember Poole actually cast several votes against Code Next. So to tell us more about the home proposal and how our own thinking on land use has evolved over the years, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Councilmember Poole. Oh, actually, one more thing before we do that. <laughs> I just want to say up front that I know that this whole discussion is difficult and controversial and people have a lot of thoughts about it. And I completely understand that. And with this episode, it's my intention to treat everyone with respect and to shine a light on what's going on, how different members of our community feel about it, and as always, to demystify this whole complicated issue for you. For you. Anyway, <laughs> that's enough disclaimer. Uh, let's get to that interview with Councilmember Leslie Poole. And so I want to talk a little bit more about how this idea developed and working on this and like your, how you've worked on this over the years too. I feel like I've been talking with you and I've interviewed you many times over the years about land development code issues. And, um, you know, you cast some votes against some of the code next changes. And I think really took, you know, I was listening back on some interviews. I interviewed you maybe in 2016 about this and you Mm -hmm. were you were trying to make sure you were taking our time and and worried about what could the impacts be on neighborhoods. And I'm wondering, I'm not saying that this is different, but I'm wondering just kind of how you how you've evolved or what you've learned over the years. Um, Yeah. So um, coming out of the pandemic, it was really clear to me that the world had changed the way people are living, um, the home, their choices of housing, where they work, how they work, um, the proliferation of telework. Uh, the fact that Austin became the fifth, the 10th largest city um, in the three to four years since uh, we entered into the into the pandemic. And frankly, the change in leadership on the council and uh, those who make up uh, the dais at this point um, is very different from the leadership that we had previously. My big objection to how we were Uh, addressing affordability and the land development code rewrite revolved previously before the pandemic and with the prior council revolved around the fact that there was, it was an attempt to change everything everywhere all at once. And I argued at the time that we, it was too much, 
it was too big of a, a bite to chew for the public to understand what we were trying to do, and that instead we should break things up into smaller chunks, smaller bits. And since uh, 2020, and really 2022, since last year, maybe for the last two years, this year and last year, the this council um, under uh, under Adler in 22 and under Watson in 23 has broken down the uh, changes to uh, chapter 25 on land development uh, into smaller bits. And none of the issues are really new. Austin has been grappling with housing and bringing more housing, realizing more housing and getting it built on the ground for decades. Um, really the, the main different piece about what I've done is to introduce the concept of by right of up to three units, but I do have documents from uh, the prior council when I was in the minority of the conversations that my allies and I had on three by right and a smaller lot size. And we never brought these concepts, but um, we were actively discussing them and in agreement on many elements of uh, these changes. They never, we never brought them because the um, Code Next and the Land Development Code 2.0 was stopped. The mayor pulled the plug in 2020 after the Soifer ruling. So none of this, so we just kind of move forward on individual uh, changes like VMU2, Affordability Unlocked came before VMU2 about three or four years ago, but VMU2 and compatibility and, and I think the residential and commercial, which is the idea of live work, you can live over your shop on a major uh, traffic corridor. Those changes uh, we passed in as individual uh, uh, initiatives. And so we just have a different, we have a different way of going about it. Um, you know, there, there were criticisms, which I um, was a part of that we were doing too much all at once. So people didn't understand it. Now we're breaking it up into smaller bits um, and, and uh, in hopes that people under, you know, will have a chance to get their arms around them and understand what the changes are in smaller chunks. Right. For building multiple units on the same lot. Do you feel like there's a way that the homeowner who lives there now can really do that? Or do you feel like it's the kind of thing where eventually when they decide to sell, then someone else could come in and build three units? You know, I've heard some concern or questions like, well, what if your home, you know, you have a, a home currently, but it's like in the middle of the lot or somewhere where it'd be kind of awkward to build like <laughs> additional houses. Or maybe you're a homeowner who doesn't really have the capital to build a, even a tiny home in the backyard would be very expensive. Like what, what does this mean for, for what those folks? Or is there a way to help them? Well, <laughs> we're not doing that. What that means is there is a small subset of people who will be able or who desire even to pursue this. It's not a, it's not something that's going to happen to a whole swath of the city of Austin residential property that's going to change overnight. It, the whole idea is gentle, uh, organic density and that there are uh, 
gentle changes and accommodations over time. Uh, this, is, this is a really future-focused concept that isn't going to show any kind of massive change in the next 12 months, but it could in 12 years. So, um, and, and that's part of that is, is a little bit um, disappointing to me because we do have the need to have more places for people to live more quickly. Um, but the gentle densification piece, which has been promoted by people like Charles Marone with Strong Towns for a really long time, I think that's his life's work. That's what attracted me to the whole um, gentle densification idea eight years ago when we first started talking about Code Next. I thought, you know, if we could do it gently and organically, it wouldn't be disruptive to our communities. And that's that's what I'm seeking is ways to allow more people to find a home in our city because they want to live here and do it in a way that builds community and does not tear it down or disrupt it. Right. I feel like that's that's important. You know, you represent, I think, a lot of what people think of as these like classic Austin neighborhoods. And so it seems like what you're trying to do here is figure out a way how to welcome more people into those neighborhoods without you know, getting rid of what people love about those neighborhoods. And you talk about um, many of the District 7 properties have the home right in the middle. I live in Rosedale. When I bought, I have about a quarter acre. It's a 70 by about 140 deep, 70 wide, 140 deep. And when I first moved there in early 2000, I wanted to build a unit in the backyard, like an ADU, because I thought if I could do that, then I could rent it out and get some revenue from that and help myself with my um, with my mortgage. Um, at the time, the rules for putting in an ADU included making uh, making sure you had a driveway so a car could be taken to that unit. We have now removed that that requirement, but that plus the cost. <laughs> And, and putting in a driveway, have, being having to have access for a vehicle into my backyard is it was one of the two big stoppers for me from building that unit. Um, the other was that it because of all the requirements uh, to change and get approvals, plus the site plan, it would have been almost a second mortgage for me, and it would have been hard to Anyway, I didn't do it, uh, but I kept that concept in my head the whole time thinking, you know, there has to be a way if I don't, if I want to use my backyard in a way that produces revenue, how, how could I get there? If I wanted my daughter and her fiance to move back to Austin and I wanted a smaller place that they could move into my house, I could move into in the backyard. How could I make that happen under home? that would now be possible. It would be cheaper, it would be faster, there would be fewer restrictions, and that would maintain the community. It would keep me living in my house and gain my daughter and her husband-to-be moving back to Austin. And we would essentially live in a compound, right? I'd be in right. the back, I'd be in the front. Now, the, the smaller lot concept uh, depending on the geometry of the lot, you could divide 
the lot up into maybe cut it in half. I don't, you know, I don't know what this, we put a number on it of 2,500 square feet to, to put a number on it. Cause you have to have something to aim at, but that never meant uh, despite the critics <laughs> insisting mm-hmm. that that was what was going to be. Um, we put it in there as a, as uh, a maximum to aim at, but, um, you know, staff always comes back with recommendations if something isn't going to work. But even that isn't necessarily going to work, depending on the topography and the geometry of your lot and what heritage trees might be growing on the lot, because we're not allowing those to be removed or in any way damaged. Um, I think what it might do is cause uh, the building to go up, but we've also kept the maximum height of either 30, 32, or 35 feet. So uh, we haven't changed that. And that goes to some of the envelope that you were talking about with the um, McMansion. We're not changing that. So given all of the parameters that remain, and if you slim it down to simply talking about, you can have three by right if it works, Mm -hmm. doesn't say that it's definitely going to work. Uh, and possibly um, be able to subdivide your lot. You could sell off um, a portion of your lot and get money from that, and then somebody could build on there. Um, It's not too likely that in the small lots, if they were divided into three smaller lots, that we would um, actually end up allowing three on each of those segment or subdivided lots. We don't yet know what that looks like. Right. That's phase two. That that's a staff is still kind of researching this and figuring out what reducing that minimum lot size might look like and what those rules might be. So we don't know yet, but it's they're working on it. Yeah. And in the spring, maybe they think they might kind of start to present this info back to council and to the public. Yeah. And so I don't know how, what that recommendation or what the modeling will look like. Again, we needed to set parameters and then see, see what we got from it. Right. Um, But, but I like, I like your example though, you know, of your house, like to take that through, like um, what this would allow, right. is like, you're saying, I think it's important to emphasize how expensive some of the city rules and permitting things really could make that ADU. Like we're not talking about even a few thousand dollars. We're talking about like no, a it's lot. hundreds of thousands. Yes. Of like that the city permit actually and like the process and the engine, like that was a big piece of that price That's tag. It. Right. And so with that removed, again, like you said, you might be able to have this unit where someday you might be able to live in that ADU. Your, your daughter might be able to live in front. And then maybe one day, it, you know, if you want to sell off your sell your house, you could sell half of the lot or you might sell the whole thing. And then maybe someone will build three houses there. And then, dec- you know, maybe that's two decades down the road or three decades down the road. And right. now you have three units there where you only had one or two before. Is that kind of this yes. is like what you're imagining here, right? To use your house as an example. Yes, all of that. And we also passed um, an initiative last Thursday that I was a co-sponsor on that would um, incentivize uh, moving rather than demolishing the older homes. So many of them end up in the landfill. And so what can we've been talking about trying to incentivize the 
the preservation of these homes for a long, all the time I've been on council. And we finally got a good IFC last week that um, with the support of Preservation Austin, they were very vocally in support. And my office has been working very closely with them on home as well so that we can keep some of the older homes and older in this instance um, is uh, 1960 or older. So that mm. was uh, the cutoff uh, date. That's interesting though. So you're talking about, you know, I think a lot of times the way it works now is those homes get moved probably outside of the city. Honestly, a lot, a lot of times I see these old houses moved, but this is talking about, oh, maybe we could just move them like down the lot yeah. a little bit <laughs> to right, make it right. so that you so, could build more later or what have you. Yeah. So if you could pick it up and move it even like eight feet over to, right. so it's not in the middle of the lot. And if we can make it so that it's cheaper to do that, then you are still preserving the initial uh, uh, structure that was on the lot and then opening up the uh, the land around it. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, flooding real quick. I'm sure this is like another one of those questions people have been asking. I know that with home, there are no changes to impervious cover limits. They're exactly the same as are currently existing. Um, but I've heard some people ask questions, well, you know, a lot of these homes really aren't maxed out on their impervious cover yet. And do we have concerns that if three units are built, then they might reach out that max? And then what might that impact be on neighborhoods? How is the city thinking about that question? Well, the city has been expanding and enlarging and replacing its water wastewater system for as long as I've lived in this town. And it's a it's a iterative process that we go through in different parts of town uh, to upsize the pipes. And uh, when I first moved into Rosedale, there was a water wastewater project underway there where they were putting in the larger pipes. Um, south of 45th Street. It's now up in north of 45th Street and in Allendale. So that kind of an expansion and upgrading is standard municipal uh, is standard municipal operations and work that is done um, all the time, like you know, working on the streets, working on your electric grid and updating and um, making more room for um, electronics and um, the communications like Google and, uh, you know, internet. So that kind of infrastructure expansion and upgrading is your meat and potatoes municipality work. Um, I, you know, the city's working to uh, expand its uh, infrastructure all the time. So I have I have no concerns about our ability to um, to manage having more people live here. Uh, we do have issues with flooding in Austin. FEMA has come through, uh, I think it was about five or six years ago with up dates to their red zone maps. Um, and that work has also been going, uh, is has been underway for a number of years where we are um, adjusting our um, infrastructure responses to that. And like I said, it's just the meat and potatoes of the work that the city does. Yeah. And, and you know, w with this issue, 
you've seen it. This has been housing and land use, like most contentious issues we have in the city. So personal to people because it's their homes. And you've lived here for many years. You've been part of the environmental community. You you know, live in these uh, some of these beloved neighborhoods of Austin. I guess I'm just curious kind of how you talk to people who raise concerns about it, you know, or question your you know, your motives or that, you know, it's, it's been so contentious and it's interesting to see, I know it must personally be difficult to to work on these things. I'm just curious how you have these conversations with maybe neighbors or others in the environmental movement where you're like, what, like, I feel like this needs to be done at this point, you know? Right. And, and that's actually very true. It it does need to be done. I feel a a heavy burden and responsibility uh, with the city growing as fast as it is and being in a position of governance and decision-making and policy-making, looking down the road into the future. I want to uh, be able to point to specific decisions that I participated in and policies that I was part of crafting that make it possible for the wonderful life that many of us are living here in Austin today exists for our children and our children's children down the road. Um, and I think it it is clearly an obligation and a responsibility of the council to be looking further down the road than um, than just next year, for example. And it isn't necessarily easy. These are hard. These are hard decisions to take. Uh, I do ask people to keep an op- to have an open mind to think that maybe there is something that is workable here for them specifically, or that they could see it having a good impact um, on their grandchildren. Um, sometimes it's easy for those of us who have arrived, who have what we have. Uh, sometimes it's easy to sit back and say, well, I've got mine and just leave it at that. And that's not good enough for me as a policymaker. I cannot rest on that. I have to be thinking uh, into the future and making sure that the Austin that we are creating today will be a the same really special place for generations to come. And that is why I am so determined to to work on these really difficult issues. I I recognize that it is discomforting people. And uh, I think that, and I'm sorry about about that. Um, On the other hand, sometimes we need to have a little bit of discomfort um, when we are moving into the future and making changes for, um, to make things, to improve things. Uh, for the future. And that was Austin City Council member Leslie Poole. Now, a few quick explainers on some of the jargon or terms you might have heard in that interview. First of all, the phases of home. So right now, City Council is only considering home phase one. The big proposed change in phase one is allowing three housing units to be built on single family zoned lots. Home phase one does not make any changes to our city's impervious cover limits, which are rules that say what percentage of a lot can be developed versus left as green space. 
And impervious cover limits, they matter because they can impact flooding and water quality issues in an area. When rain falls on green space, it's more easily able to soak into the ground and go through a more natural filtration process. Now, Home Phase 1 also doesn't make any changes to our city's tree protection ordinances. Those rules still apply here. Now, in the spring of 2024, city staff has said that they're going to come back to council and to the community with a potential Home Phase 2. The main thing that could happen in Home Phase 2 is a reduction in the minimum lot size for single-family zoned lots. So right now, the minimum lot size in Austin is 5,750 square feet. And there are some initial conversations around Home Phase 2 suggest dropping that minimum lot size to around 2,500 square feet. The idea behind this is fairly simple. Given the high cost of land in Austin these days, having a larger minimum lot size basically guarantees that the home built on it will be more expensive. And there's been a lot of rumors and confusion over phase two because a complete proposal simply hasn't been released yet. Over the summer, council directed staff to begin working on it and set some loose parameters, but the truth is, We just don't know exactly what will or won't be included in phase two yet. In theory, though, when combined with these phase one changes, lowering the minimum lot size could mean even more than three houses could be built on what had previously been one single family zoned lot. Now, we easily could spend hours talking about minimum lot sizes, and we likely will in the spring when city staff uh, officially brings this proposal to council. But for now, let's just focus on the actual proposal before us, which is home phase one. Now, like I mentioned at the start of this episode, changes to our city's land development code are always controversial, and home is no different. Now, home has received a lot of support from groups including the Austin Housing Coalition, Uh, which is made up of several affordable housing providers. Uh, Other organizations like Environment Texas and Aura have also expressed support for home. But other organizations and individuals have raised concerns over potential unintended consequences of the home initiative. To dive a a bit deeper into those concerns, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Carmen Yanis. Carmen was born and raised in Austin, served on the city's planning commission, and is currently the executive director of Go Austin, Vamos Austin a nonprofit that organizes and mobilizes community power to reduce barriers to health while increasing institutional capacity to respond to the people most impacted by historic inequities. Okay, let's go ahead and listen in on that interview with Carmen. I should say, first and foremost, okay, I'm an Austinite from here. Secondly, I'm a community organizer and I've been working for the last, the better part of the last two decades since I moved back to Austin um, from Chicago, which is the other city I lived and went to school in. Um, I've been working in predominantly Northeast and Southeast Austin and South Austin in neighborhoods that have been home to a lot of Austin's working class and a lot of Austin's people of color. And I have learned a lot of history about these areas and really just gotten to know them from 18 different Title I elementary schools um, and countless neighbors uh, and people who live and work in these neighborhoods. So that's what informs um, my background. And then I've gotten some technical expertise from a number of advocates and developers, as well as through the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, where I was a fulcrum fellow in 2019 and 20. 
Yeah. So you've been you've been thinking about these issues for a long, long time. And I feel like it's important to to set the stage a bit. You know, when these housing issues get brought to City Hall, they often are pretty contentious. And I think it's helpful to explain, provide context for people why, especially Eastside communities, the communities you work with, uh, are weary of really any kind of land development code conversation in general. I think that's helpful for the general public to understand. Can you fill us in a little bit about why this is a particular area where, you know, you tend to get concerned. Yes. And I'm, it's interesting that you use the word weary because we are, I could say we are weary and wary. Because <laughs> the weariness comes from the fact that this is not new, that this has been, well, first of all, the, the inequitable patterns we see in land use and development and these decision-making processes, um, it repeatedly disadvantages communities with fewer resources and communities of color. And that is a repeated theme that we consistently have to come up against. Um, and then in the process, uh, we're often packaged things um, that, for example, in, in this most recent home initiative, the framing is to address the housing crisis, but it's not coming at it from a place of working with people who are negatively impacted by the housing crisis. I mean, we all are arguably in some way or another. Um, maybe it's hard for lots of people to buy a home, but we're also, we've got people at different risk of losing their housing. And so uh, we're concerned because we don't see directly impacted people being engaged and we're not seeing action on the, on the actual policies and actionable items that could support affordable housing. But we are seeing a sort of urgency to deregulate and open up the market to the highest paying investors, um, oftentimes at the expense of working class communities. So it puts us in a position of saying no a lot to what's being proposed and then being framed as NIMBYs or um, you know, obstacle placers because we don't want to move progress and we don't want to build more housing, which is not the the case. I think the communities I work with are interested in stabilizing by preserving the affordable housing we do have, doing something to protect some of the units that are affordable to people now, and actually building and preserving more units at a deeply affordable level. Because if we can move housing insecure people into housing that they can afford, they open up those units for middle income people to move into less expensive housing and so on. So we actually think increasing the supply of deeply affordable housing will bring our prices down. But just opening up for regulation, um, we're seeing big, expensive buildings. I think we all just we all many of us agree we don't like that. But the 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 changes to the code that keep getting proposed. Um, open up more of those opportunities. And so we're saying we don't want that. We want some creative ways to create more gentle density, um, keep in mind flooding and our tree canopy and open up uh, our supply of deeply affordable housing, which will ultimately bring down housing prices, but not from the opposite end. And we're seeing we're seeing where that's leading us now. Right. And I definitely want to talk We'll circle back around and talk about some of those solutions. But for right now, some of the concerns with what's been proposed, you know, I was I interviewed Councilmember Leslie Poole, who is the one who kind of put forth this resolution. And, you know, I think, you know, the way she phrases it is that this home is gentle density that 
is not doing anything to our tree cover, that those reg- you know regulations are still in place, that impervious cover regulations are still in place, and that the idea behind this is to not have those big, expensive apartment complexes, but to have small townhomes and duplexes, this gentle density idea. Do you disagree with that or have concerns about that? Or where's your take? I on think that? we could have a conversation about gentle density. The problem is the rhetoric doesn't match up with the policy. So it sounds good. And even in the first hearing that the city held, they had renderings of, of small triplexes and little buildings and nice big setbacks where it didn't look like big, new, expensive construction. It looked like maybe just broken up, you know, a few more units in place of where you have one. The problem is they weren't showing pictures of the maxed out uh, entitlement. So it's assuming that developers, investors who would be flipping a property uh, would build something smaller and leave money on the table in order to give us something that's less expensive and and more aesthetic. So, um, for example, you know, if if we had an intention to make this about uh, gentle density and smaller units, then we would create a code or the city would create a code and beta test it, you know, actually put out models for us to discuss um, that would make those structures small. But then when we see things like um, the duplex rendering I, I presented in uh, in my testimony, for example, that showed a giant big box structure that doesn't really create any more units of housing than what you can already build. Um, that's not what we're finding. That's not a bug in the proposed policy. It's a feature. It's an actual incentive um, is to allow structures that are so big that they can be built as luxury units. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who you are, there's still a big demand for big luxury units in Austin. There are people coming in with the kind of money that can buy that. And so there's an incentive to demolish smaller structures and build larger structures. We're seeing it now. We'd love to see a proposed policy that gets us in the right direction to smaller structures, but we're not seeing it in this policy. Right. And so, you know, what you're talking about there, I, you know, I, I guess is trying to figure out there's not specific limits or depending where the limits are on the size of the housing unit. So, you know, I think that um, proponents of this will say at least, well, you could have three units, whereas before you could only have two. Right. So even if they're large, at least there's three. That means three families are there. We're building we're increasing the amount of housing that we can put into a neighborhood. Does that still raise red flag for you? we just need to be careful about the language when we say three families are you are you imagining three families on a lot does that mean uh structures a thousand square feet or larger um or are we talking about units i mean i i think for one uh if we're talking about accommodating you know entire households we need to have a conversation about our infrastructure and our built-in environment actually accommodating that level of safe development. And I will say also there are regulations in place to to limit things to keep us to keep our quality of life, our safety, etc. We have various ordinances and you know all of those things. Right now we don't see any plan to regulate drainage. I think you were with me in that open house where watershed didn't have really answers because they don't have a site plan uh, process for three units on a lot proposed. So how do they determine that, um, 
those three units aren't going to contribute to lot to lot flooding? Um, how are they going to ensure that there is sufficient um, drainage, but also just all of the infrastructure associated with that? And so the fear is that the oversights and the mistakes are going to happen where people don't have the money to enforce things. In other words, deed restrictions are going to stop three units to a lot in many wealthier West Austin neighborhoods, but they won't in East Austin neighborhoods. And flooding is worse in East Austin neighborhoods. So who is going to be making sure people aren't, you know, poisoning their trees to cut them down to build a bigger development or paving over lots where we lose the oversight and the public process and notification. Unfortunately, we're already seeing examples of where people try to cut corners just because there's so much more money to make. So I've heard of some examples of people wanting to build additional units on their lot, say up to three. And I think for certain exceptions or reasoning, there's a, a, a way for us to look into policy that could support, for example, cooperative housing, uh, legacy, heritage, family, property, preservation, you know, um, keeping property within historic families, et cetera, you know, uh, historic neighborhoods um, it, with a preservation uh, aim toward it, as opposed to just a per completely deregulated uh, policy, because what you see again and again, the experts will say, opening up these zoning regulations to allow more units only supports affordability and community benefit if you put regulations in it. If you don't have any protections for affordability or the environment, you're going to see some of the worst of what real estate investment is pushing in our housing market. And, and so what are some of these regulations that Maybe you've seen other communities do or you've tossed around. It seems like one of them potentially you mentioned is, I guess there's that fear that if the, the reality of our real estate world is that if there are large units over, I don't know what the square footage is, but you know, over 1,200, 1,500 square feet, that they're probably going to be expensive. <laughs> is that one of the the concerns, I guess? Yeah, I mean, expensive is a relative term, right? right. I mean, there's been an argument for townhomes as an alternative because you can fit more townhomes right. in smaller space, but we have no evidence that that makes them affordable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the kind of development that's being proposed, the kind of, of exemptions, basically, and deregulations being proposed or, or you know, allowing more in a, in a smaller area. We've seen, we've seen it in Mueller and we've seen it in the Grove. So when you look at the at the Mueller development, um, they've actually probably put a lot more green into Mueller than there was before because it was an airport. So it's not like we lost a lot of trees to those townhomes or anything. And they're beautiful. They also cost upwards of $900,000. Uh, if you look at the Grove development, same kind of thing people were promised, um, affordable units, smaller homes, smaller lots, townhomes. And same thing, you can look on Zillow, none of that is within reach of any middle-income person in Austin. And not only that, it's a it's a gray patch in what otherwise is an urban canopy. So we're worried that, you know, because the only way you can actually introduce a lot of the new units that people are talking about is going to be to cut down trees and increase impervious cover. And you're right that, that Council Member Poole and others have said, we're not doing that now. But when we look at the bigger plan of reducing minimum lot sizes, which is still certainly on the table, which could mean this is actually six units to a current lot, not three, up to, and you look at what's happening at the state legislature that might endanger our heritage tree ordinance, 
we really see the rules open up in a way that could be super detrimental to our our urban canopy and our infrastructure. And again, is not giving us any affordability. It's not giving us um, a community benefit, um, but it could cost us more. And that's why we'd like to do this more carefully. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're talking about some of these things. Maybe there should be regulations tied to this around yeah, think the trees, the environmental impacts, anything else that you feel like, you know, if you were looking at these would be helpful to, to add into this that would make it, uh, you know, serve it, its stated purpose better? Yeah, the question is, should we add into it or should we just take it off the table and actually bring mm-hmm. together the, the solutions that we would like to look at a la carte? I mean, it could be one and the same, um, but a couple of the other things we need to look at is impervious cover. We kind of touched on it, but basically that's how much of the land can you cover up with pavement? Um, most single family homes are not taking up their full footprint. Um, unless they've been like massively renovated. Um, But if impervious cover goes up, there is a drainage consideration. There's a water quality consideration. And we still have some stuff to to figure out in our code around that. Um, And like I said, about how we would actually regulate it and make sure we don't cause more problems that get really expensive for us to fix. Um, The other one you're going to see for sure, I'm almost positive it will come up in the coming hearings, Um, and meetings is going to be about size. So the size of the structures, I can't imagine it can't be discussed because right now there is no limit on the size really. And McMansion isn't even applying. In other words, the McMansion ordinance, which believe it or not, is a limitation on how big those giant uh, redeveloped homes can be, uh, is uh, proposed to be taken off the table. McMansion doesn't just regulate size. It also does some things around form, So how the rooftop is shaped, et cetera. So I think there's a big push to take that off the table and start looking at size limits. That's where it's going to get jargony and hard for people to to cover. And that's why we're going to need probably some friendly architects (laughs) and some honest city staffers to help guide us through what is a reasonable size component for this. Um, And is there, no pun intended, is there a one size fits all across the city? Or does it need, do we need to look at a few of these conditions better so that we're allowing the kind of density that we want to see? And and what about, you know, you talked about alternatives kind of outside of home. What other things are on your radar that, that you wish we had in Austin that you've seen other cities do that have been discussed in the community that you feel like, you know what, this, we feel like this could move the needle. Or we'd like to see city council focus on this. Yes. Thank you for asking, Amy, because we really do want to talk about solutions more than just fighting negative stuff. Um, But for one thing, um, I've mentioned again and again in December of 2021, there was a resolution passed by the council to allow ADUs across the city and to explore creative financing. And the community leaders actually worked on this with some community development financial institutions in town and looked at financial products. So we could look at uh, you know something like a forgivable loan for somebody who would like to put an ADU in their backyard or on their lot, which does add some gentle density. It's an additional unit. It's not huge. Most people can agree on it. And with creative financing and some more alternatives explored, it could be accessible to more middle-income people, maybe even some low-income people. Again, you have to be able you have to qualify for those kinds of financial products. But we have community partners ready to help. Um, 
it is going to increase someone's tax base and so or you know so their tax liability and so it would contribute more tax revenue probably wouldn't spike the land value in the same way as adding three to six entitlements per lot and so that's why it, it's a good starting point because with that starting point we can also discuss um, manufactured housing as an opportunity. And I don't mean just picking the manufactured housing that's brought to the table by some of the investors behind the home initiative, but I do think manufactured housing is an important component of the housing solution we should talk about because um, I'm learning more and more about how uh, it actually is can be climate safer, storm safer than regular housing, certainly more affordable and accessible to lower income homeowners. Um, you can get really nice manufactured housing, you could even get a home that was say a thousand square feet um, that could host a family. Um, and that's something that I think gives us a starting point that's much more equitable. Um, we also have talked you and I about scaling community land trusts and starting community land trusts now that in 20 years, we probably could scale that, um, that we could look at um, not just building housing where we still have land, but preserving existing buildings, renovating and rehabbing existing buildings. I think it's important to remember there is a huge amount of money coming down the pike from the federal government uh, in the form of the Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act and other funding around housing and climate. This is a once in a lifetime, a once in a career kind of influx of federal dollars, and it's an opportunity to leverage dollars. There are also healthcare partners increasingly looking at the social determinants of health and how housing and wraparound services support these things. So I really am optimistic about what we could do if we put our heads together on how to um, leverage more, of course, building on public land. I was a co-editor of the People's Plan for Anti-Displacement. These are some of the same things we've been talking about, updating the drainage criteria manual so that we can actually uh, approve upzoning in a more cautious way around localized flooding and drainage. And then I would also um, I would also urge the city to look at an equity analysis um, of geographically where um, existing market affordable housing is most vulnerable to demolition in a proposed policy like this, because I think we could exempt certain vulnerable areas or at least make an affordability requirement. Keep in mind, if you are granting the ability to develop uh, which the city is doing in this proposal, they have the right to require increased affordability. That's true in a planned unit development. That's true in vertical mixed use. So they could say, if you want three units on a, a, a lot, at least one needs to be affordable at say 60% MFI or 80% MFI. And some investors are going to argue, well, then, you know, you can't, you can't pencil the project out. Well, maybe not in a fully market rate for profit project, but there is certainly funding out there and capital out there to subsidize for affordability. If people really want to, the city simply has to require it. So we're saying if we want, uh, if we actually want to address the housing crisis, then let's come up with some solutions that support people from the grassroots up because this proposal to me is just a way of increasing passive income for people who are doing fine. And our wealth inequality is really suffocating our economy at this point. So we need better solutions than simple deregulation. And that was Carmen Yanis. And just to follow up on some of these points that have been made about impervious cover and flooding. 
Uh, here's what city staff have said about the issue in response to a question posed by a member of Austin's Planning Commission. Quote, The Watershed Protection Department does not anticipate that the Home Amendment proposal will substantially change stormwater runoff conditions at a neighborhood scale, such that upgrades to storm drainage systems are required. This is not to say that the drainage systems in many of Austin's neighborhoods are adequate. A number of them are undersized and need upgrading. But just that modest changes in impervious cover will not change these conditions, leading to drainage problems, and flooding meaningfully above what they are today. These problems require a capital solution, whether or not the Home Amendments are enacted. Moreover, Phase 1 of the Home Amendment proposal does not increase allowable impervious cover. End quote. So that's what the city says. Anyway, for our last guest of the day, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Jake Wegman. Jake is on the faculty of the Community and Regional Planning Program at UT Austin. He also is one of the authors of a report called Here Come the Tall Skinny Houses, Assessing Single-Family Townhouse Redevelopment in Houston from 2007 to 2020. Now, I'm just going to say up front that, of course, Houston is not Austin, and you can't draw exact one-to-one parallels from one city to another. But I thought it could be useful to talk with Jake about what he saw in Houston when they adopted similar proposals to what Austin is considering. And I'll say right now, before we start the interview with Jake, he supports the Home Initiative and feels like it could be helpful for Austin. Okay, let's go ahead and listen in on that interview. Okay, and so when we're talking about this missing middle housing, um, what is the appeal of it? Like, why why are so many people talking about what? Why is this something that we're hearing a lot of our city council members start to advocate for? I think there's a sort of um, let's call it a left brained economic analysis, and I think there's more of a right brained let's call it emotional or cultural analysis. So let's start with the cultural or emotional one. I think a lot of people like a lot of this housing, you know, picture your favorite neighborhood in America that you've ever been to, you know, for a lot of people that might be somewhere like Williamsburg in Brooklyn, or it might be, I don't know, the, uh, the, the mission district in San Francisco. Um, it might be the Bywater in New Orleans. And what these places all tend to have in common is that they tend to be full of, of historic missing middle housing. And it turns out the missing middle housing, it's a nice compromise where there are enough, you know, people in the neighborhood that you support things like local businesses that you can walk to, and then public transit becomes possible. Basically, city life becomes possible. But on the other hand, the buildings are still relatively low in scale, and they're not monolithic because they're on small lots, so you don't have these you know, giant apartment buildings that go on for an entire uh, block. And by the way, I'm not criticizing those. I think they have their place. But um, I think a lot of people just intuitively respond to that. And so when we have a vision like in Austin, where we'd like to guide the transformation of our existing single family neighborhoods into something more like that, I think that is appealing to a lot of people, myself included. Now, then there's the economic side of it. And the economic side of it is you know, I think just about everyone intuitively understands that if you have a piece of land and you put multiple units on it, then you're spreading the land cost across multiple units. Um, but uh, the large apartment buildings, and in particular high rises, 
you know, despite packing a lot of units onto a small piece of land, they're they're not particularly inexpensive buildings. In fact, high-rise buildings are very expensive. And mid-rise buildings, the ones that we see going up along, you know, various parts of Lamar or Burnett Mm -hmm. or South Congress or Airport Boulevard here in Austin, those are, I wouldn't call them expensive buildings, but nor would I call them inexpensive buildings. you know, for example, they have concrete parking garages, which drives up the costs a lot. They're they're just big, complicated buildings. They have the parking garages, like I said. They have elevators. They have a lot of things that make them make them. And when you say expensive, do you mean that they sell or rent for high cost, or that they are literally expensive to build? Like that they have a lot of costs going into them. Relatively expensive to build. Uh, so. And just to broadly generalize, you know, high rises, which are, you know, only being built in a very small, you know, part of Austin, you know, downtown, West Campus, and a couple of other little pockets. And those tend to rent or sell for a lot, right? So if they're condos, they're expensive condos that have, you know, views and amenities. If they are uh, student housing in West Campus, you know, the rents might not be sky high, although they certainly aren't cheap, but, you know, students are being kind of packed in there and that's keeping the cost down uh, in, in that way. But those kind of those mid, those mid-rise apartment buildings that are going up all over town, you know, those tend to be rented to someone basically earning a normal salary. So I'd call them neither very expensive housing, and but nor would I call them, you know, truly affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we get into missing middle, one of the things that's appealing about them from an economic standpoint is that a duplex or a fourplex or a group of, you know, let's say three townhouses or something like that, it's basically the same construction technology that a single family house is built out of. Um, you know, wood framing, uh, the parking is not in a, in a, in a, in an above ground or below ground concrete garage. There are no elevators. Um, very often, depending on the exact type of building, you can avoid you know, having to put in fire sprinklering. Um, there are no internal corridors. You know, Each unit can have its own door, which is appealing, but is also nice in the sense that you don't have to devote any interior square footage towards corridors or lobbies or things like that. And so now does this mean that new missing middle housing that will be built in Austin will be cheap. Not exactly cheap, but the hope is that it can produce reasonably expensive, likely homeowner, inexpensive homeownership housing, or at least homeownership housing that is considerably cheaper than what you can find now, especially in in an attractive central Austin location. Yeah. Can can we talk a little bit more about that? Because, you know, I feel like on the face of it, that makes sense to me too. It's like, okay, a duplex, I don't like, I don't need this, all this yard and land and all this stuff and it, and it would be cheaper. But then, um, you know, sometimes folks I talk to about this, they push back on that and they'll, they'll point to places like Mueller where we do have these like missing middle houses and they say, look, go on Zillow now, you know, these houses are going for, you know, almost a million dollars. And, and I guess, can you talk a little bit about that, about that disconnect of what we're, what we're seeing then? Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot going on there and there's a lot to unpack, but I guess one thing that I would say is just, you know, new houses, uh, or new housing units 
they're they're just they're not going to be inexpensive for the exact same reason that new cars are never going to be cheaper than used cars are. So to me, the right comparison between a new unit and let's say a a, a, a triplex is not to you know the rundown single family house that got demolished to make way for it necessarily, but rather the the, the relevant comparison is to a brand new single family house unit, you know, that would otherwise be built in that sa exact same spot, you know, were it not for rule changes that would let you build the triplex. Um, as for Mueller having, you know, high high prices, yeah, it, it, it does. The single family houses in Mueller are very expensive. There are some fourplex units in Mueller. There's not a ton of them, but they do exist. And if you look at them, they are much cheaper than the single family houses in that exact same location. So, you know, clearly doing the fourplex does make it possible to, to deliver brand new housing at much lower prices than 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 if you, you know, build it as a single family house. Um, right. So, yeah, it seems like it seems like what you're getting at there is like what we're already seeing a lot, especially like in East Austin is a small home gets bought gets knocked down, someone builds in its stead a huge single family home. That's a lot of money. <laughs> like that's already happening. Right. And I guess like kind of what you're getting at is like, what if three or four homes could be built in that spot instead? Like if that that's was going to happen. That's anyway. the, that's the relevant counterfactual. Because right. So I, th I think what a lot of ordinary people wish were true, like a lot of people wish that it were let's call it the year, I, I'm just going to, you know, make up numbers. I don't know uh -huh. how the exact numbers, but, you know, a, a lot of people would just love it if we could go back to 1995 when you could buy a single family house on a 5,000 square foot lot in East Austin that was in decent condition and didn't require hundreds of thousands of dollars in repairs. And that house would cost you 200,000 or a quarter million or whatever it was. But the thing is, there's there's no policy that can deliver that outcome. I know a lot of people really wish that that would happen, but but there's there's nothing the the local government could reasonably do to make that happen. Instead, you know, the world that we're in is one where a lot of houses in you know older neighborhoods in Austin are in poor condition, and um, you know maybe some other people would prefer that someone would buy those older houses and invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into them to bring them up to kind of modern habitable standards. But that that's just not going to happen in the world that we live in. Now, it is true. If, if we really wanted to, we could change the zoning laws and basically make it so that it wouldn't make any sense to tear down an existing house because you wouldn't be allowed to build a big new house. Um, I suspect that if anyone proposed that, there would be, uh, I'm not going to say riots, but uh, there would be tremendous anger and that policy would never get anywhere because it would dr drastically reduce property values. And uh, if there's one thing that homeowners hate more than paying higher property taxes or seeing their neighborhoods change around them it is having their property taxes, their property values go down. Mm -hmm. So I just, there, there just isn't a world in which um, small, old, rundown houses are not going to be torn down in, in Austin. And so to, to me, the question is, what do they get replaced with? You know, do we do we think it's great that right now so many of them are replaced with 3,000 square foot 
single family, brand new single family houses that are going to sell for 1.2, 1.5, $2 million. I, I just think that's a terrible outcome. That's not, I don't think that's what most people want. So uh, to me, much smarter to change the rules so that you could possibly build something that, you know, uh, someone within striking distance of being middle income might have a shot at, a, at affording it. I think that's, I think that's where we want to get to. Right. And, and in a minute, I want to talk about Houston as an example here, but first, you know, like you even mentioned it, it's like, and I hear this again, a lot from uh, folks is like the, the cheapest housing, the most affordable housing is like the housing we already have is some of this older housing stock. And there's been push from some folks who are like, what, like we need to preserve this because this is like the last (laughs) vestige of the ability of certain people to live in these neighborhoods or people who've lived there for generations. And I know you were involved in like the uprooted study, you know, like what's been happening with gentrification and how these people have been displaced. Are there models? Are there examples? Like it's a tough pill to swallow to be like, like, is what, like, is there no world in which we can preserve something? Uh, Cause it is tough. Like you're saying, I understand. It's like, yeah, if it gets knocked down, like, but it's like not yeah. the answer. I think it's no, not there, satisfying. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack here, but to me, the basic answer is to accept in cases where there's a true imperative towards historic preservation, where we're preserving, you know, certain buildings or houses is important because of historic significance or unique architectural character. I am not someone who waves that away. I, th- I think that's valuable and important. It has to be weighed against other important things, but um, if I, I agree, it's vitally important to give people the opportunity to to stay in their existing neighborhood or to live in their in their cho- chosen neighborhood, and to do that uh, requires us to do two things at once. One is to build a lot of housing and make it as abundant as possible and as and as cheap as possible to build, but we're going to also have to have uh, public subsidies too. There's mm-hmm. just there's just no getting around that, and um, luckily those two things they work together. And I think this isn't often recognized enough that the public subsidies that we have, and you know we have a lot. I mean it's not enough, but we have a lot more of them than we used to. We you know the voters approved a quarter billion dollar housing bond uh, you know a few years ago. Um, those subsidies will go further if it's possible to build new housing for not all that much in existing neighborhoods. Whereas if we make it prohibitively expensive to add new housing units to existing neighborhoods, then you you, you just, you cannot justify um, putting, you know, half a million dollars into bringing down the price of a renovated single family house in a mature neighborhood to within range of a household earning $70,000 a year. Just no one's going to support doing that because it's just, it's just too wasteful of an expenditure of those of those scarce public subsidy dollars. But if you can build, um, I don't know, a triplex in an existing neighborhood and the public subsidy only needs to be a quarter million dollars instead of a half million dollars, then then maybe that makes more sense. So I think that's the kind of conversation I, I, I think that we should be having. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it goes back to what I said before. If people want there to be a way where through public policy, we could take these existing, I don't know, like 900 square foot bungalows in Crestview and, um, you know, put 
public dollars into them so they can be fixed up and then resold to a household earning, you know, $70,000 a year, that would just be so prohibitively expensive that I just, you know, it, it would never get off the ground. Now, on the other hand, if we could create a world where the existing bungalow on the front of the lot stays, but you can build a few units behind it, and in return for the right to build those units behind it, you have to fix up the the house in the front, like that. I think could be viable. Um, yeah. But it, but I think just the the bottom line though is just land is so incredibly valuable in Central Austin now. Uh, many neighborhoods within several miles of downtown, the cost of an acre of land is over five million dollars. You just you just can't have people affordably living on 5,000 square foot lots when when land is that expensive. That That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. I want to talk some about this transition from single family to having some of this missing middle, because that I think is like the crux of a lot of the debate I'm hearing in Austin now, right? Like I talked to some folks who are like, yeah, I'd love to live in a duplex or a triplex. That sounds great. But it's like the sticky part is, well, how do we get there? Like, what does it mean if, you know, Austin's proposal now is to allow, you know, up to three units to be built in our most of our single family zones. And there's a lot of questions like what pressures will that put on, you know, people's uh, tax property tax bill or will that f- put fuel the fire on displacement initiatives? And I know that this is a bit of the conversation and the study you looked at in Houston. Maybe now's a good time to bring that up. Can you talk about some of the research you've done about what Houston did here? Yeah. So, um, what Houston did starting in the late 90s is they did something analogous to, to what's being proposed for the home initiative phase two. So that's the part of the home initiative, the, you know, the the possibly the later part, if it goes forward. That Which would, would smaller, min, smaller lot sizes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So um, in, in Austin, the proposal is to reduce the minimum lot size from the current 5750 in a lot of the single family zones, you know, and it would be reduced to 2,500 square feet. In Houston, it was made even smaller. It was uh, as low as 1,400 square feet under some circumstances. And uh, so initially, this was reform was made in Houston in 1998. And then some years later, um, it was extended to cover the whole city, not just the, you know, initially it was just the urban core of Houston inside the inner loop, if you, if, if your listeners know the city, and then now it covers the whole city. And um, what happened was, um, so, well, first of all, depending on how you count them, something like 25 to 30,000, what are called townhouses in Houston have been built since the late 90s. And in Houston, a townhouse means a tall, skinny house that may or may not touch its neighbor on the side. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's, you know, a small gap between a townhouse and and its neighbor. Um, But the thing about it is, though, that only something like a little over 5,000 out of those, let's call them 25 to 30,000 townhouses, depending on exactly how you count them, but only about, let's, you know, a fifth of them or less were built on what had formerly been single family parcels. So about 5,000 of those houses were built in cases where a developer comes in, they buy an existing single family house, they tear it down, they replace it with some number of townhouses. Um, and you know, as to the concern about displacement, 
these were uh, primarily built in neighborhoods that were definitely not gentrifying neighborhoods. So in other words, a neighborhood, um, how to put this, uh, a lot, a single family lot was more likely to be most likely to be redeveloped into townhouses if it was in a neighborhood that in the year 2000 was above average in terms of household income. So before I closed out the interview with Jake, I also asked him if the experience in Houston tells us anything about if there should be possible exemptions to something like the Home Initiative. Basically, I was curious if it would make sense to exempt certain neighborhoods like those most at risk of gentrification from the proposal. Anyway, here's what he had to say. It's complicated because if you increase the, if you change the rules and make it easier to build, let's say three units on a lot. Um, well, first of all, the experience from Houston shows that when you do that, uh, developers, they would most like to build in the most affluent neighborhoods because that's where prices are telling you the demand is. So like if they're allowed to do that, they're going to do that and they're going to leave the Montopolises alone. They're not going to mm. be as interested. In and then the, the you know, the, the other the other thing is that if all of a sudden you if you make one of these reforms, all of a sudden there are thousands and thousands and thousands of places where a developer can build one of these projects. And so each individual lot becomes less special to a developer. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, often we'll have these cases where for whatever weird reason, a certain lot is unusually large and it becomes incredibly coveted by developers because it's the only place that they can build a project that they want to build. If you loosen up the rules, you know, developers like, you don't want to sell me that piece of land? Fine, I'll go buy another piece of land over there. So I think it's just, it's not as straightforward, I think, as people think that you loosen up the rules and all of a sudden, you know, every lot in central Austin just erupts with a new housing development overnight. That's that's not that's not what happened in Houston. I don't think that's what would happen in in, in Austin either. And that was Jake Wegman. And one more thing that Jake mentioned about the study he did in Houston, he said that if you look at the new townhouses that were built uh, that replaced single-family houses from 2007 to 2020, the median size was over 2,000 square feet of those homes. And in the median case, these townhouses were assessed for more than $200,000 less than new single-family houses built over the same period. And so what Jake is essentially saying here is that, yes, these new townhouses are not cheap, but they could be much closer to being in range for middle-income homebuyers than what we have right now. Oh, and one more thing about the home initiative before we close. It's hard to stay up to date on these because I'm not sure when you'll actually be listening to this podcast, but several amendments have already been proposed. Um, one has been proposed to incentivize the preservation of older homes by allowing even more to be built on a lot if the original home is preserved instead of being knocked down. Um, and another amendment has been proposed that would actually limit the size of some of the additional units so that they might be more affordable. Um, and so a reminder about what's going to happen next. Council is going to have a special called meeting on home phase one on December 7th at 10 a.m. The public will have an opportunity to speak at that meeting. And following resident testimony, council might even take a vote. Um, amendments will also likely be considered during that meeting. 
So be sure to keep an eye on our Instagram page for more info about the home initiative, proposed amendments, and how, can, and how you can make your voice be heard. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based here in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really does help us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin, so thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. Thanks for listening!